All right, I don't have to ask this week because we got the speaker out here and we can actually hear the song being played. So take your Bibles tonight and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Uh, we concluded Jesus' sermon last week, but there's a couple verses at the end that I want to look at tonight because I believe they're important. And um, Brother Brian's actually going to preach for us next week, uh, next Sunday night, so I'm looking forward to that. And uh, boy, God knows exactly what we need when we need it, doesn't he? It's 85 degrees out here, and the sun went right behind the trees and the clouds and everything else. I don't know if, uh, you know, normally it's a monsoon, and we're trying to hold everything down. There's no wind moving out here. I'm not going to complain about it, though. We've had so much wind this year, it seems like, and um, <clears throat> we'll, we'll take what we get when we get it. I was looking at the weather for the next 10 days, and I don't think it goes above like 64 or something like that. I'm like, I thought I thought summer was here to stay, and it's, it keeps... It keeps uh, tempting us with this warm weather and then disappearing on us, but I'm um, uh, glad for the warm weather out here tonight. We're not going to complain about it, but Matthew chapter 7, and uh, the Bible says this in verse number 28, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, every word in the Bible is there on purpose. If God's promised that he's going to preserve his word to the point that not one jot or one tittle is going to pass away from the law, then that means every word and every part of every word is important. Um, these two verses are not just relatively useful epilogue tacked onto the back of the greatest sermon ever preached. I, I think that there's a whole lot more being revealed in these verses, a, a precious truth, really, that ought to impact uh, every person here tonight. This crowd... We went through Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and all the way through Matthew chapter 7. All three of those verses encompass, all three of those chapters encompass the Sermon on the Mount. And we spent 32 weeks looking at all of those different sermons, uh, or all of those different parts of the sermons. But this crowd, having just heard the greatest sermon ever preached, focused their attention on the one who preached it. That's exactly what these verses say. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Having spent 32 weeks considering this sermon, I'm asking you tonight to look straight at the one who preached it. So tonight, with that in mind, let me give you my concluding thoughts on this, the greatest sermon ever preached. The title of the message tonight is simply this, Jesus ended these sayings. Jesus ended these things. Let's pray, and then we'll look at these things tonight. Father, we love you. Give me thank you so much for how good you are to us, and thank you for the time we can spend together here around your word. Pray that you give us something that we can use in our lives, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. The authority of the sermon is derived from its preacher. Uh, why should we practice this sermon? Why should we pay heed to the warnings that were given in this sermon? Why should we follow the instructions? Why should we adjust our lives to fit with what Jesus said we ought to be doing in this sermon why should we fall in line with this sermon when it really just is completely out of the line with the natural course of our lives we talked this morning a little bit about our flesh and the way that our flesh fights against the things of the spirit a lot of the things that jesus talked about in here are things that fight directly against our flesh our flesh doesn't like it our flesh doesn't want to do those things because it means that we have to put away our flesh it means that we have to nail our flesh to the cross like paul says i die daily so what makes us want to follow what we're being told to do in this message? It's because of the person who preached it. And the person is with a cap out marriage. But if I've been divorced four times, it would be very hard for you to take me seriously or for me to preach with any authority on 
uh, uh, have any authority behind what I'm preaching. I haven't been divorced, by the way. Uh, my first wife and I get along really well. We figured out how to make it work so far, and uh, everything's going fine with that. But uh, what, I, what I say is only backed up by the way that I live. I can say all I want to about this or that, but if I'm not living that way, then I have no authority behind what I preach. Of course, the Word of God has its authority, but boy, it sure loses a whole lot. I've, you know, I've grown up in church. I'm 36 years old. I've been in church from the day after I was, uh, the week after I was born. I don't know exactly what day, but uh, I could probably count on one hand the number of times that I've missed church my entire life. And in that amount of time, you see a lot of people. You have a lot of different leaders that come and go. We grew up in a big church, and so we had one pastor for the entire time that I was there. He was there 45 years, some, somewhere along those lines, but there was a lot of assistant pastors that came in and out, and most of them to come in, you know, train and then and then leave to go and, and take a church or, or go into some other area of ministry. But inevitably what happens is there are some that come in and make mistakes. And they leave and when they leave because of the mistakes that they made and when I say mistakes, I'm saying they you know they, they fell into immorality or something like that. Something that would disqualify them from the ministry. And you know, you can hear all the messages that they preach, but then when you find out about what they were doing and what they were involved in and why they ended up leaving the church, you start thinking back over all the messages that you heard them preach and everything that you heard them say, and you start thinking, did any of that mean anything? Did any of that mean? It, it certainly seems like it didn't mean a whole lot to them because all of this was going on at the time that they were preaching these things. And you just, it just really, they lose all the authority behind anything they said for that entire time that they were ministering to you. And so to a certain extent, the validity of every sermon rests on the preacher who preaches it. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We actually kind of focused on that. But there's a great advantage to you being fed spiritually uh, by a local church pastor versus an internet or versus a radio pastor or something like that. Don't get me wrong. You can't listen to too many sermons by those that you know are doctrinally sound. I listen to a lot of sermons myself, but but you can't watch their lives. You can watch mine. If I am asking you to jump a foot, you can be sure that I'm doing everything that I can to jump three. I'm not going to ask you to do something that I'm not trying to do myself. I'm not going to preach about something that you should be doing if I'm not doing it myself. And so uh, for, for that matter, I want you to know that. That I'm, anytime I get up here to preach, I'm not just telling you to do it because, well, the Bible says it and i got to preach it. I'm trying as much as I can to do it in my own life at the same time. And that, I believe, gives validity to what I'm preaching. It gives authority to what I'm preaching. Here's another helpful aspect. I think we have to examine these verses in light of the Jewish cultures of that day. Uh, the scribes, those that, that were, you know, expected to formulate and expound on the laws and everything else. And we've talked a lot about the Pharisees. We've talked a lot about the Sadducees and the scribes and all of these people who were really anti-Jesus and, and really just did everything they could to be a thorn in his side for his entire ministry. But they took great pride in always quoting other scribes and rabbis and going back centuries to establish their point. And I think their motives were good in this. It can protect you from preaching heresy. It can add some depth to your preaching and Certainly, I love to read old books. Um, I, I like to collect old books. I've got a lot of books that are from the 1850s, the 1870s, the early 1900s. And, and not all of them are, are books that are filled with theology, but a lot of them are. And some are history books. And, and honestly, the, the farther you can go back, the farther back a book is written, 
I think the closer you get to the real truth of what was going on during that time. Uh, I, 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 uh, and actually, my father-in-law, his library was just huge. I forget, but he has something like six or 8,000 books or something like that. And of course, he just passed away recently, and we've been going through some of his books. And I came across the book that he had from 1875 that was all basically hymn stories. And a lot of the old hymns that we sing in our songbook are in that book from 1875. But the guy who was writing about it is writing about the lives of these authors who wrote these songs and, and you know, about their lives. And he's talking about these guys being born in the 1780s and the 1790s. And you think that that was a long time ago. For him, he was probably alive when a lot of those guys were alive. And, and some of them might have still been alive at the time that he was writing the book. And so he knew them. He knew the lives behind those stories. And so you can get closer to the source. And by getting closer to the source, you find out uh, a lot more of what was really true. Uh, sometimes history is, you know, and you, you take stories like Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone and some of those guys. And, you know, the way that news traveled back then was a little different than it travels now. And so it would take months sometimes for stories to start filtering back into the East. And by the time they got back to the East and were being written in books, they were greatly exaggerated. And and, uh, you know, these stories about some of these guys never really happened, but they went down in the history books as if they did, because that's what people were used to, uh, or that's what people had been told. And then now people go back and do research and find out, well, it didn't actually happen this way. But I say all that to say that when it comes to, com comes to these scribes and these rabbis, they went back and they quoted uh, the older scribes, the older, the older rabbis, those who had, uh, who had basically spoken with authority. And you can take that too far and that develops problems as well it becomes a means for the preacher to display his intellectualism and i think that gets to be a problem it becomes a you know just kind of a stale quotation of dusty commentaries and and nothing fresh from the word of god it places the authority in the hands of the commentators instead of in the scripture and i think that's another thing that 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 um pastors in particular but but even those you know laymen who study the bible and things can can, can rely so much on commentators that they were not relying on the Holy Spirit to give them something. And well, if you're only relying on what the commentators are saying, then you're missing out on what the Holy Spirit wants to give you. That's exactly what the scribes and rabbis of Jesus' day had done. In fact, some of them took pride in the fact that they had never had anything original to say. I mean, could you imagine somebody saying that today? I've never said anything original. Everything I've ever said, I've quoted from somebody else. It wouldn't have a whole lot of authority, but back in, in Jesus' day, when Jesus was talking about this and giving us this, this sermon, a man wasn't considered a rabbi unless he had been mentored by some famous rabbi who had been mentored by some other famous rabbi and so on. And if you look, at, look throughout the New Testament in a couple different places, Paul even mentions that he was trained in this school and trained by that person, and he wasn't doing it as a prideful thing. He was trying to say, look, if somebody was going to brag about it, look, look at my training. That has nothing to do with it. That's why Paul was mentioning it, but a man couldn't simply expound on Moses' law or the prophets alone. He had to cite what generations of teachers before him said, and he had to stand on that. But Jesus threw all of that out in this sermon. And we've, we've looked at it. We're not going to take the time to go back and look at it. But as we've spoken about, Jesus said, But I say unto you, six times in this passage, in, in, in this sermon, the authority in this sermon is the preacher who preached it. Jesus Christ is God, and as the authority who preached this message, we ought to change our lives to fit with what this message says because of the preacher who preached the message. But the second thing is this, and we only have two points tonight. The second thing is this. 
It's logically pointless to embrace the truths of this sermon while at the same time rejecting belief in the one who preached it. It's pointless to embrace the truths of the message of the Sermon on the Mount and reject a belief in Jesus Christ. Along the way in this series, we've spoken of a lot about the, the religious liberal people who reject the divinity of Christ. They reject the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. They reject his sinless life. They reject his, his death on Calvary. They reject his resurrection. They reject his virgin birth. And not all of them reject all of these things, but there are people who reject different parts here and there. And they do that, and all the while saying that they think Jesus was a great scribe, a great teacher, a great, you know, a great leader, a wonderful man because he taught such nice things in this Sermon on the Mount. If you're going to accept this sermons and the truth in it, along with that, you have to accept and you must primarily accept the claims of the preacher. Look in Matthew chapter 7, we're there in verse 24. Some of the claims about Jesus Christ himself just in this sermon. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. Here he's saying basically that obeying him determines the destiny of a man and a, and a man's family. Whether or not you accept what he's saying, if you say something like that, you're either a cult leader or you are God. And there's a lot of cult leaders who say the same thing. Jesus Christ, and, and what I'm trying to say tonight is that he is not a good person if he's not God. He's not a good teacher if he's not God. He's not somebody that we should follow if he's not God. Because he's either a blasphemer, he's either God or a liar. Obviously, we side with the fact that Jesus Christ is God. Look what else he said, going back in Matthew chapter 5, still at the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount. He's still in the Beatitudes. And we, man, it seems like it's been years ago that we've, that we've talked about the Beatitudes. But Matthew chapter 5 and verse 11. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. He doesn't say for the teaching's sake. He doesn't say for God in heaven's sake. So many people think that this message is all about the revolutionary truths that are found in the message, when in reality the sermon is all about the revolutionary preacher who preached the message of the Sermon on the Mount. If your encounter with this sermon is limited to an application or two and it hasn't caused you to encounter the one who preached it, then you're missing the entire point of the sermon. You're missing the entire point of why Jesus preached this message. Look at verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. See, the Pharisees were paranoid that Jesus Christ was turning their religion on its head. And they were right. That's exactly what he was doing. It's not about the law anymore. It's not about making sure that we do everything the way that they said it had to be done. They had something like 680 laws that they had to follow. And they had them all ranked in order of importance because some of these were uh, contradicting, co contradictory to each other. And so they had them ranked in order of importance. Well, what happens if you get here and you have to do this? Well, this one's more important, so do what that one says. Right? Jesus completely turned all of that stuff upside down. Jesus was because he was returning their religion to its original intended roots. But beyond that, here... Jesus is claiming that in himself was the entire fulfillment of the law. Everything that he said was great. Everything that he talked about was exactly what we needed to hear. It's doctrinally sound and it helps us to, to, to better understand and to better know our own doctrine. 
But Jesus Christ was not after the intellectualism. Jesus Christ was not after, you know, making sure that our doctrine is sound. All those are, those are important things. Jesus was after the fact that he wanted us to give him our hearts. He wanted us to know him. That's what he was after in this sermon. With I am come, he says, he places that lens squarely on himself. He calls the attention directly to himself and to his claims and to the solutions that he offered the people. And I think this, this staggering immensity of this claim to fulfill the law is almost immeasurable. To fulfill all the prophecies and all the ceremonies pointed directly to the Messiah. That's why it's so hard to comprehend that the Jews did not recognize Jesus Christ as the Messiah. How could you not see that in this man everything was wrapped up that had been talked about for years and years previous to that point? How can you not see that? But they rejected him. They rejected his message and they rejected him to fulfill the law in the sense of taking into himself the entire judgment facing a sinful humanity, to fulfill and completely obey all the moral rules of right and wrong contained in the law. In other words, to be sinlessly perfect. That's exactly what Jesus Christ was. We're told that this sermon has no doctrine, and so liberals embrace it. But in this sermon, we have seen the doctrine of the entire incarnation of Christ. We've seen the doctrine of His sinlessness. We've seen the doctrine of His atonement for sin. But it all comes back to Jesus. Look at it says in Matthew chapter 7, and verse number 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Here he is again, allowing and even encouraging people to refer directly to him as being God and Master and Jehovah. He's claiming to be divine and equal with God himself. And then, and then, I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Here he is claiming the right and the responsibility of judging man on his eternal destiny. The one who sat on that mountain to preach the Sermon on the Mount 2,000 years ago is the very same one who's going to sit as the judge of all the earth on the great white throne on that day of judgment before whom the lost of the ages come to hear their condemnation, their sentence of condemnation to an eternal hell. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 28 again. It came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. See, these scribes were just always going back to, well, they have said and the prophets have said and those before us have said and the scribes had no authority in themselves. They realized when Jesus got done preaching this message that he had all authority. It wasn't the same this, that way that the scribes did because the scribes said, well, they've said this, so this is the way that it must be. Jesus said, they've said this, but I'm telling you, this is the way that it ought to be. They were astonished. No wonder they were astonished. They wandered out of the towns of Galilee to hear what they assumed to be the newest religious craze. They flocked to Jesus by the thousands, and we see... Many, many times the Bible talks about the multitudes following him. Most of the time, the multitudes did not believe on him. There was a lot that were saved. There was a lot that did believe, but there was a lot that rejected his teachings at the same time. Little did they know that they'd be witness to the greatest sermon in the human history, or that they would be face-to-face -face with a man who claimed the right to interpret Scripture with complete validity, who claimed that he was worth suffering for, who claimed to be 
the very fulfilling of the entirety of the Old Testament, who claimed to be God and who claimed to be the judge of all the earth in the ultimate sense. Little did they know when they followed Jesus out there to the mountain that day and listened to him preach that message that encompasses Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, that they would be listening to the one who had all authority and who was the Messiah. This sermon is like the rest of the Bible. It's all about Jesus Christ. I mentioned in many, many different messages that we preached on this sermon that Jesus Christ is after your heart. That's what he wants. He wants your heart. And all of these other doctrinal things are important. It's important to know what you believe. It's important to know why you believe what you believe. It's important to understand doctrine and study it and all of those things. But none of those things matter if you don't know Jesus Christ. If you don't have him and if he does not have you, then all of those things count for nothing. He verified his claims with miracles. He backed up his claims with a sinless life. He confirmed his claims by walking away from his own tomb. What a wonderful Savior. Jesus ended these sayings. And when he got finished, all of those who were looking at the man that had just finished preaching it knew that he was a man that spoke with authority. There was something about him. And everything that he said, didn't, they didn't think, wow, what a tremendous message. They didn't say, wow, look how he spoke. Wow, look how he captivated his audience. They said, look at him. The people were astonished, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Does he have your heart? That's what he's after. That's what the entire theme, that's what the entire focus of the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Does Jesus have your heart? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. Thank you for the message that we have in this Sermon on the Mount. What a tremendous, tremendous doctrine we find in it. But even more than that, we find Jesus. I pray that it's that he would be the focus of what we're looking at. Pray that he would be the focus of everything that we do in our lives and that we'd give our hearts to you. Thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. I know this is more and kind of been this way the entire series that we've preached. It's more of a teaching slash preaching than it is just preaching, but sometimes the teaching of the Word of God is just as convincing, con convicting as the preaching of the Word of God. And like we've done for each of these services, the piano is going to play for just a couple verses. If God's spoken to your heart, even if he hasn't, talk to him. Ask him to help you understand the things that you study in the Word of God. Ask him to help you have the relationship with him. Ask him to help you give your heart to him. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. As the piano plays, take a couple minutes.